to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disasters, business continuity, emergency management, COVID, well-being, crisis communications, anything that's relatable to those topics, and anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free to reach out you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick there, so I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. As many of you know, and I say it a lot, I love to read. I read all sorts of things, magazines, books, comic books, and newspapers, anything um, for entertainment, research, and education. I just love to read. And as some of you know, monthly I meet with James Green on my YouTube channel of the same name, Preparing for the Unexpected, and we have a kind of let your, da- let your hair down kind of uh, conversations. And at the end of each show, we talk about what books we're reading. And we, we share that with everybody who's viewing, and uh, hopefully they pick up those books and learn from them just as we do. On the day this book came out that I have beside me here, He held it up, and as soon as I saw the title, I went, I have to get that book. That's a cool title. And when I got the book, it only took me a few pages to realize I have to reach out and get the author of that book on this show. So today, the book, first of all, is Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. And here's a picture for those on YouTube. And I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Samantha Montano. Samantha, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. And congratulations on the book, because I know it's new. It's only, what, three, four months old? Yeah, it came out at the beginning of August. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I really do. Uh, I think what sets this book apart from many others in the same kind of uh, vein or genre is that it's not just... Uh, research, because obviously you have research in here and you quote research, um, but there's a lot of personal and family anecdotes in here, which sets it apart from a lot of other, uh, you know, academic research uh, books that come out. So thank you very much. It was a really enjoyable read. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. And for anyone who doesn't know who Dr. Samantha Montano is, can you take a minute or two and tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and... and actually how you got into what you do. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Maine on the East Coast of the U.S. uh, And I was in high school when Hurricane Katrina happened. That was kind of the first uh, catastrophe that I was involved in. Um, I had the opportunity to go down to New Orleans to volunteer for a week uh, with my high school. And so I went down there. I 
you know, there's, it, it's one thing to hear about Katrina, I hear about these large events kind of on the news, see pictures, see videos, but to actually physically be there and see the extent of the destruction and really see the extent of help that is required uh, is something completely different. And so I was there for a week helping gutting houses, rebuilding houses. And I went home and I to announced to my parents, I would be moving to New Orleans <laughs> as soon as I turned 18, uh, which I did. I, I moved to New Orleans and I worked with all, a whole bunch of different recovery nonprofits for about four years there doing disaster work, um, kind of, you know, anything and everything that needed to be done in the city at that time. Uh, while I was living there, the BP oil disaster happened along the coast. And so uh, some of the environmental groups that I worked with in the city were going down to the coast. And so I kind of tagged along, did some community organizing, got to see kind of the response unfold and then later see the recovery unfold there. I ended up going with a group of volunteers to Joplin, Missouri after their tornado around that time. And so I just kind of started going to all of these different disasters that were happening around the country. And as I did that, I started to see kind of the, the scope and scale of our problems, not just in uh, you know, how people were kind of reinventing the wheel every time we needed to go through a recovery, but also that we were being really reactive and how we were talking about disasters. We weren't being proactive enough in trying to prevent them. And then kind of you add the climate crisis on top of that. And uh, it started to become very clear that we were going to need some pretty major changes to how we were doing emergency management. So I ended up going to grad school. That's how I became a disasterologist. And then I wrote the book. <laughs> Catches you up. And I just want to say, too, in your book, the way you just, because you described some of what you just said in here as well, um, but you don't hold back on some punches sometimes. Um, you're, I would say, very, there's passion and then there's, I don't know what comes beyond that, but I could definitely tell you have a passion for what you do. It definitely came through on the pages. And when you saw or felt there was uh, an issue with disaster response or preparedness, um, you made it known. And I liked that in the book. You, you didn't hold back. Yeah. You know, I think that's really important. Sometimes I think, uh, emergency, folks who work in emergency management uh, very often have to be very careful kind of politically with what they say. I think a lot of what I talk about in the book are things that like any emergency manager, anybody who's in emergency management would read and probably it, it would resonate with them or they, they you know, kind of understand these problems. You know, a lot of those, these problems I'm raising mm -hmm. are not like new ideas. We talk about them behind the scenes. It's about kind of elevating them to a broader audience. Um, so I think one, I'm like very lucky to be in a position where I can be more outspoken than I think a, a lot of people in emergency management are able to be. Um, but it also comes from the fact that I got started doing disaster work among nonprofits, among activists. Uh, and I kind of come at this from an organizing perspective and come at it with uh, the belief that we need to change what we are doing in emergency management and that the way we're doing things isn't uh, effective. It isn't just. Uh, and so, yeah, so it, it is a passion for it, but it is also kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I have an agenda here of uh, wanting to, to change the way we're doing things to, to make communities safer. 
Yeah, that that was another aspect of the book I liked. So, you know, uh, kudos to you. Uh, and like I said, it doesn't read like a lot of the other books. So let's jump in. First of all, because of it, you called yourself this, a disasterologist. So what is disasterology? Yeah, so while I was in graduate school, my master's and my doctorate are in emergency management from North Dakota State University. And while I was in graduate school, anytime somebody would ask me what I was studying, uh, or I'd meet somebody and say I was I was studying emergency management, they would give me this blank stare, they would have no idea what I was talking about. They'd be like, Are you a firefighter? I'm like, No, that's not what this is. Um, and so I kind of started rethinking how can I communicate what I'm doing? It was really came out of like a selfish thing here. Um, and in looking through some old research from the 70s, 80s, I saw that some disaster researchers were playing around with this term disasterology and kind of uh, thinking about whether or not the study of disasters had reached the point of being a field of disasterology and they at the time said, no, not really. It's kind of still a subset of sociology. And so there was some kind of academic back and forth in, in the research. But I looked at it and I said, that's a cool word. And that is really descriptive of what I'm doing. I'm studying disasters. This is really simple. Um, and it's a term that, you know, kind of intuitively, I think people can kind of get a sense of what it means. Uh, and so I just started using it kind of informally on Twitter and in my blog, and it caught on <laughs> and a bunch of other disaster researchers started using it as well. So um, disasterology really is just means the study of disasters. There are people in all different disciplines, history, uh, you know, economists, psychologists, sociologists, geographers, uh, you know, all of these different disciplines that are studying disasters. And so I kind of think of disasterology as kind of encompassing that full body of work. Um, and then, of course, still, you know, I'm still an emergency management researcher. That's my home discipline. Um, but yeah, it, so it's just a term to kind of more broadly encompass this body of literature that exists. I liked the term because really when uh, I, I started reading your book and you, you were calling yourself a disasterologist, I went, yeah, you know what? I understand it just by the one word. It makes right. complete sense to me. You know, now i got to find one for business continuity management. You know, yeah, i got to think about that. that. You know, yeah, good luck with that because <laughs> no one's been able to come up with something. <laughs> um, in your book, you talk about uh, disasters and catastrophes. And I think most people would kind of use those terms interchangeably. You don't. There's a distinguishing, uh, some distinguishing points between the two. What are they? Yeah, so, you know, you're absolutely right. People do tend to use these terms, disasters, catastrophes, calamities, like there's kind of all of those words, people use them interchangeably. Um, again, going back to some early disaster research, uh, Dr. Quarantelli, one of the founders of disaster research, he uh, proposed a classification system for these events that happen. He said there's emergencies, there's disasters, and there are catastrophes. And uh, all of these events fall under the umbrella of what folks in emergency management do. Uh, but there are uh, way there, there are, you know, characteristics of these events that are going to differ. And because of that, 
the way we respond to them needs to be different. So emergencies are on the very low end, large scale apartment fires, you're handling that largely with local resources. Uh, it's a pretty localized event, usually not even making national news. Uh, and you know, it's still something bad that has happened, but people are able to kind of move through that relatively quickly. We have disasters in the middle. This is like your Superstorm Sandy, your Joplin tornadoes, uh, even your Hurricane Harvey's on the higher end where you have extensive damage. You need that help coming in from the outside side, you need uh, federal assistance, you need, uh, you know, there are, there's emergence within that community, the community is coming together to try and meet all of the widespread needs. Um, and then on the like far end of the spectrum, we have catastrophes. And these are the events that completely overwhelm not just one or two communities, but overwhelm an entire region. They are when things come to a complete standstill, logistically aid is unable to come into those communities. You don't only need help coming from the national level, but you often need international assistance coming in. So in the US context, this would be Katrina, this would be Hurricane Maria. Um, internationally, you're looking at the Haiti earthquake, 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, so, you know, these, these events that are on the high, high end. And again, you know, colloquially, people are, are using these terms interchangeably, but from a management perspective, the way you respond to an apartment fire is obviously going to be very different than the way you respond to Hurricane Katrina. So, um, yeah, really making sure that we're clear about those distinctions, that we're recognizing which type of event is happening when it's happening so that we can respond appropriately. And that when we're thinking about planning for these events, we're not only planning for disasters, we are actually planning for these uh, less frequent, fortunately, large scale uh, catastrophes. How do you plan for a catastrophe? considering based on what you said, they can be so huge in scale. You, you mentioned the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. How do you plan for that considering the, the size and scope of that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you're talking about an event that is going to require an international response, this is where the United Nations, these larger kind of international bodies become really important. Um, and having a plan ahead of time for what does this look like when we need not only help from the international community, but when a country itself and that country's leadership becomes overwhelmed and needs international assistance. There's all kinds of, uh, like obviously there's all kinds of uh, political landmines here that you have to navigate. Um, but we know that when there are catastrophes that the local or the national leadership and local leadership are either themselves killed or injured in the event or are otherwise out of communication and you do need that leadership coming in from the outside. So even just having those conversations ahead of time. Um, you know, since 2004, since Haiti, there's been further developments kind of within the international community about how these responses go. Um, but still, there, there's certainly more that we could be doing in terms of, of planning. And I know some uh, countries and governments have um, different programs and different uh, response units set up. Here in Canada, we have what we call DART, Disaster, mm -hmm. Assistant, Disaster Assistance Response Team, which can... You, and based on some of the examples you just stated, can get together really quick, 
and off go these huge, massive planes full of equipment and uh, you know things that are needed by people right off the bat, and they they can go within a matter of uh, you know. Um, someone told me hours, but considering the scale, sometimes I'm not sure that's true. But definitely go in a day or two, you know, and be able to just mobilize and off go somewhere in the world to help. Right. Yeah, that's a great example. On that note, we've already come, see how fast this goes? We've already come to the end of our first segment. We're talking today with Dr. Samantha Montano, the author of Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. And we'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Dr. Samantha Montano, author of Disasterology. Uh, Samantha, great first segment. Lots of good information there. Um, I want to jump to uh, something Um, that I want to ask you, how is climate change contributing to the seemingly increase in natural disasters? Yeah, so there is a a lot of evidence now that climate change is at the heart of changing the hazards that we're experiencing around the world. So um, we have research from climate scientists that uh, demonstrate how the changing climate is affecting hurricanes and flooding and heat waves and droughts and all of these other hazards that in emergency management, we have long had to manage. Um, And so as we uh, get a a better sense of that research and as we're starting to be able to uh, narrow these climate changes down at at a more regional level, we're getting a much better sense about what the actual impacts are going to be in specific communities. So for a long time, we've been talking a lot about kind of global climate averages and you know saying sea level rise globally is going to be x number of feet but what that kind of obscures is how that is going to manifest in your community right are you going to have 1 foot of sea level rise or are you going to have 7 feet of sea level rise that's a major <clears throat> difference and from an emergency management perspective that's a really important difference because that changes our calculus on what we're going to do in terms of mitigation in terms of preparedness and so um, you know there's this clear connection uh, between these increase in disasters increase in risk uh, across the US but around the world as well um, there are some other factors that are at play here too so development, how and where we're living, the interconnectedness of our systems, the need to maintain and build more resilient infrastructure. So it's not only climate change that's contributing to this increase, but it's certainly a a driving factor here and is really kind of becoming the the driving, uh, driving concern within emergency management as we move forward. 
you you talked about I've, I've got other questions here I want I want to ask you but you talked about the interconnectedness what did you mean by that yeah, well, you know, if you think about how interconnected our uh, our infrastructure, our lifelines are today, so, uh, you know, when you think about the electric grid in the U.S. and kind of the vulnerabilities that can exist there, um, you know, where, you know, if you think of like the 2003 East Coast blackout, for example, right, where you have one small thing happen in one part of the country and it, it has this rippling effects across the U.S. and the Canada, um, you know, that's all the, this interconnectedness. The other kind of more recent and obvious example are supply chain issues around the world, as we've seen with COVID, um, even, you know, sh you know, shutting down flights, lessening flights around the country. The, this has all had uh, an effect in kind of every corner of the world. And, uh, you know, that is something that is kind of on the newer side when we think about these events, these these events that in the past may have been more geographically isolated can have this much broader effect. Well, I know you mentioned the rising sea levels and you talk about in your book, uh, actually it comes up, I think more than once, uh, where you're, you're driving in, I, hopefully I'm remembering this right, Louisiana, and mm -hmm. you're going down a road and you're noticing the homes are all on stilts. But every time you go down this road, you notice that there's less noticeable bush <laughs> and more noticeable water <laughs> each time you know so yeah. it, it's interesting you know because when i read that the first thing that came into my mind is well, why would somebody build a house on stilts but that probably meant that at some point none of that area was underwater right yeah, no, yeah, when those homes were first built, um, in many of those places, there was land. Uh, granted, it, it they were wetlands, to be fair. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you, you know, the road you're describing is Highway 1 uh, in Louisiana, and it, it goes down uh, to Southeast Louisiana, uh, and uh, it kind of ends in Grand Isle, Louisiana, which if uh, anybody's been watching Hurricane Ida coverage, Grand Isle, uh, that road actually was where the eye of the storm crossed over and, and a lot of the homes uh, and the towns that I mentioned uh, along that road were uh, devastated by Ida. Um, but yeah, that was really the first time that was the road I, I used to drive it really frequently during the BP oil disaster, which affected that same area. And that was really the first time that I physically saw climate change um, and really kind of gained an understanding of, oh, this is not an issue for the future. This is happening right now. And this is, you know, something that we need to immediately begin to act on in terms of adaptation. Of course, the, you know, uh, dealing with uh, climate change itself as well, but the actual adaptation side of things, that this is something that we, we need to be dealing with immediately and that people are already experiencing. Something else you, you also mentioned, um, you know, with natural disasters. Samantha, can we even call them natural disasters if we're a part of the problem? So the short answer there is no. Um, this term natural disaster is one that uh, more and more disaster researchers uh, and disaster survivors actually have been talking about uh, and trying to dissuade people from using. Uh, this goes back to disaster research in the 1970s that 
questions the use of this term. And it's really rooted in our changing understanding of what actually causes a disaster and what a disaster actually is. Uh, you know, when you have a hurricane, that hurricane itself isn't the disaster, it's a hazard. If that hurricane just goes out to sea and doesn't bother anybody, then it isn't a disaster. We like, that's fine. That's part of the natural world. Mm. We don't need to deal with it. But it's when that hurricane comes ashore, when it is, uh, you know, leading to people needing to evacuate, it's damaging buildings, uh, it's causing this destruction that we see these storms uh, cause, that's when it becomes a disaster, when that community becomes overwhelmed. And so when we're thinking about, uh, you know, what we can do to prevent disasters, which should be our goal, uh, it's not necessarily changing whether or not we have hurricanes. It's changing how we're building, where we're building, uh, you know, what resources are available in a community for people to evacuate. Those are uh, those, the kind of the byproduct of these events are really linked to policy decisions and linked to how we're planning. And that is within human control. Those are things that we can act on. Those are things that we can change to make these events less damaging, prevent them from happening in the first place. Um, I will add climate change has kind of furthered this argument, of course, as we see climate affect specific hazards as well. So again, even kind of more of an emphasis here on the need to kind of do away with this natural disaster term. The well, I, I heard this a long, long time ago, and I, I don't know if it's true. If people aren't impacted, it's not a disaster. Is that true? Yeah, I, I mean. Because we can have, you know, to your point, you know, you brought up some great examples so far. If we have an avalanche that cuts off a river or something, and now you've got, uh, you know, animals and the land down, well, what used to be downstream, no longer having any water source. So. Uh, you know, or, or forest fires, just because no one lives there, wouldn't that still be a disaster? Yeah, so I would call both of those examples hazards, right? There's the uh, potential okay. there for impact to occur. Um, you know, in my definition of disaster, I really emphasize humans uh, and property, the environment to an extent. Um, but you know, another example that we use frequently here is when a tornado goes through a field and no one's there. And yeah, there's damage to the field. But if that isn't a field that is being used by people, then it's not going to really be elevated um, to something that emergency management is going to be concerned with kind of at most that that could lead to an emergency in some sense, but still probably pretty safe out of the disaster territory. Okay. It, it just popped into my head as you were talking. Yeah. Okay, well, let's ask that. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's a good little thought experiment to go through. Yeah. <laughs> um, you talk about do-it-yourself recovery. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so in the United States, the way that our recovery system is structured, it really leaves individual disaster survivors kind of out on their own to navigate and figure out how to rebuild their lives. Um, and so in this way, it's very do it yourself. Like you've got to just kind of figure it out. You're out there on your own and you're trying to piece together the resources that you need, uh, you know, relying on your savings account if you have it, dealing with your insurance company if you have insurance, 
trying to navigate the federal government and FEMA's recovery programs, which depending on who you talk to, you're going to get a different answer. Um, and, you know, working with various nonprofits who are there trying to help. Um, and, and you're really just kind of navigating this process on your own. And it's really confusing and it's really complicated. And if you haven't been through it before, you really don't know what to expect. Anybody who hasn't been through a disaster recovery before as an individual usually has no idea how complicated the process is, how time consuming it is, how long recovery lasts. You know, we're talking about recoveries for these major disasters that are lasting for years, if not decades in some cases, to the extent that people are ever able to fully recover from these events. And so, um, you know, in the book, I'm pretty critical of our recovery system in the US um, based on my time in New Orleans, but also based on the research uh, that I, uh, and research of my own that I've done since then. And, um, you know, and, you know, again, kind of pushing here for a change to those recovery programs, change to how we approach recovery to make it easier for people so that they don't feel like they're just on their own doing it themselves. To take that a step further, you also talk about um, some of the myths, you know, like all the looting and um, rapes and murders and things like that, that get reported, but really it's not true. That's not what happens. Yeah. So again, this is more, you've brought up all the research from like the seventies and eighties that disaster researchers did. Um, yeah. So that original group of disaster researchers, Dr. Forentelli, who I mentioned earlier, other folks that were working uh, with the disaster research center, they went around uh, in the, like from the fifties into the eighties, they went around to all of these different disasters that were happening around the United States uh, to study how people were responding so Dr. Quarantelli and these other disaster researchers went around to all of these disasters that were happening across the country to try and uh, understand how people were reacting to these disasters when they happen. And what they found is that contrary to kind of the prevailing belief at the time, people were not running around panicked. There wasn't all of this chaos there wasn't looting, people weren't abandoning their roles. Uh, in fact, it was quite the opposite. There was all of this pro-social behavior. People were coming together to help one another. They were opening shelters. They were doing search and rescue even before official authorities got there. There was all of this aid that was coming into the community from surrounding communities. Uh, and people were really working together, trying to address the needs that were occurring in that community. And in the time since that original research has done, has been done, uh, more research has kind of confirmed this. And we've seen this consistently uh, across the country in terms of how people are responding to these events. Again, the reason why this matters for emergency management is that if it's true that when a disaster happens, people are running around looting, then you probably are gonna wanna divert resources to try and prevent that looting from happening. This is about really making sure that we're, you know, using our resources in a really effective and efficient way. I remember reading about the San Francisco uh, earthquake uh, back, what, 1907 or 17? 1906. 1906, okay. I knew it was, 
<laughs> You're close. <It's> okay. <laughs> We're back there. You're only a year off. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the army came in, assuming that uh, their help was going to be needed, and um, they shot and killed people, believing they were looting uh, homes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turned out that uh, quite a few of those people were actually what we would call rescuers. They were going through rubble of poor houses and you know people with rich houses, trying to find the people and trying to rescue them. And the army just assumed, oh, it's all pillage and you know and looting, and so they shot all these people you know, unnecessarily. Yeah, you know that. Yeah, that's a kind of a classic example, and unfortunately, we still see kind of remnants of that happening today when disasters happen. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you're right; it is more than just a misallocation of resources. It can be dangerous, right? When you have people walking around with guns in the midst of a disaster where there is genuinely confusion as people are trying to figure out what's happening, anything can happen, right? That is one of the very first things that uh, if folks remember during Hurricane Katrina, when uh, General Russell Honore arrived in New Orleans to kind of take over that response, one of the very first things that he did was walk around and tell the New Orleans Police Department to put their guns away, right? And saying, there's no need for that. That's not what we need to be doing right now. So uh, yeah, you know, it, it, that looting myth especially can be incredibly dangerous. Yeah. On that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We are talking today with Dr. Samantha Montano and her book, Disasterology, and we'll be right back. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Dr. Samantha Montano, author of Disasterology. Uh, Samantha, in your book, you uh, talk about um, disasters sometimes occurring due to decisions made many years, if not decades, earlier. What did you mean by that? You know, usually when people think about disasters, we think about them as these very discrete events that occur kind of at a moment in time, right? When you think of Katrina, you think hurricane, levees breaking, flood. And that is kind of the event. That's kind of how we think about that. Maybe we think a bit about the recovery. Uh, but in reality, the groundwork for Katrina was laid decades and, and really centuries before that hurricane ever even formed, right? The uh, decisions that led to that area being settled by Europeans, how the city was created, where the city was located, right? Right next to the river in this really vulnerable, uh, this really physically vulnerable place. 
Uh, it has to do uh, in terms of the differing impacts between various neighborhoods in the city of New Orleans. That's all a relic of uh, policies about where certain people were able to live uh, during the 50s, 60s. Um, you know, the strength and how levees were built in various parts of the city and which city which parts of the city had greater protection than other parts. This is largely a product of policies based on race and class. And so when we think about the actual impacts of Katrina, which neighborhoods flooded, which houses flooded, not to mention, you know, how aid actually went uh, to different neighborhoods at a disproportionate rate, you start to see there's this much larger context. There's this much, much longer history that has led us to this point and has created this vulnerability that certain people experienced. And so when we think about our future risk and our kind of future vulnerabilities or the vulnerabilities that exist in our communities today, it's important to not only be thinking about kind of which hazards we're vulnerable to, but thinking about that much broader social vulnerability and how policies have created that risk in our communities to try and undo some of that risk or to at least figure out how we're going to address that risk so that when we do need to respond to an event, uh, we can do so in a more equitable way. You also say that sometimes these uh, decisions, um, and I just want to get the quote, exasperates old ones things that were done ages ago. And now we're making decisions that, you know, affect what, I guess, what was decided years and years and years before. Right. Yeah. I mean, this all is getting at this idea that we have to take this kind of broader time scale uh, into consideration when we're thinking about disasters. I think this is really important too, as we're thinking about the future, thinking about climate change, right? In the US, we just passed this big infrastructure bill, finally, and uh, there are about to be a lot of really big decisions made about our infrastructure across the country. And we're not just making those decisions about, you know, what kinds of roads we're going to be driving on in five years from now, but we're making decisions that, you know, 50 years, 100 years from now are going to have to be interacting with our new climate, right? So this is a really good example of how this policy, whether it was made 50 years ago, made now, or future policy, it all is a factor in how this risk is happening and how these events are unfolding. It, you just got me thinking because of the, the larger timescale. Do some of these decisions get made simply because people are thinking the here and now? You know, uh, using Katrina, Katrina happened now. So we'll make our decisions based on what we know and what we feel right now. 20 years later, it's, you know, oh, well, those weren't the right decisions we should have made, but sometimes it's already too late. Is it because we have difficulty thinking in a time scale like that? Yeah, some, it's part of it, right? There's a lot of different decisions that are gonna go into why certain policy decisions are being made, right? There's always um, you know, the interest of specific politicians and who is funding these various projects, who is getting a government contract to do these projects. Um, but there is absolutely this element of not thinking far enough down the road. And one of our major problems in emergency management is that we very rarely 
plan for recovery ahead of time. We are almost always doing recovery on the fly, improvising as we go, making a plan up months after the disaster has happened when people have already started to rebuild. It's a mess, right? This is where this do-it-yourself recovery comes in. And so just from that like community level, if you don't have a comprehensive recovery plan that is taking into account what the community is going to need decades in the future, then yeah, you're going to recreate a lot of vulnerabilities. You're not going to um, necessarily take advantage of the, you know, quote unquote, window of opportunity that exists post-disaster to not just build a community back to where it was before the disaster, but to really integrate mitigation for future disasters into that recovery. I know with um, you know, business continuity and resilience, so where, where I focus, I, you, people don't often think beyond you know, the following week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, well, this happened right now, we'll just focus on this and then we'll worry about other things later. And yeah. But by then, when later gets there, other priorities have already popped up and you've forgotten about it. Right. And we also have a tendency to plan for the last event that happened rather than, you know, what the future events could be. Yeah. Well, let's move to another interesting topic. And this one, uh, I don't want to say made me laugh, but there, there were some chuckles in here uh, with your viewpoints on this. Um, you have an interesting perspective on go bags. Can you talk about those? Sure. So, you know, the go bag is the everyone's favorite in emergency management, everyone's favorite preparedness technique here. Um, so we hear a lot about go bags, right? And when people kind of talk about individual and household preparedness, they're very often uh, thinking through this kind of checklist of supplies that people should have in their house, their food and their water and their extra phone chargers and whatnot. And those are all good things to have. I always want to prefer it preface this by by saying that, right, those are all important things to have on hand if you're able to have those on hand. But I think that, uh, you know, some of that stuff and kind of the importance that we place on it misses the mark a little bit when we think about how a response to a disaster actually unfolds and how, um, you know, we don't go through disasters by ourselves. We go through disasters with the people around us, whether that's our family or our neighbors or our broader community. And it's about shared resources, right? Going back to this human behavior, how people come together when a disaster happens. Um, And so sometimes I think that emphasis on go bags is a, a little bit um, kind of overemphasized. That said, I also make this point, and I think this is prob- probably what you found funny, is that regardless, I am essentially walking around with a go bag every single day because I have my purse with me and it has just about anything on that list in some form. I can go down that preparedness list and check almost everything off just based on what I have in my purse, just day to day that I need as I go around. Um, and so again, there's kind of uh, tends to be like a, a different gender analysis you can put on this concept of preparedness and um, kind of, you know, just challenging folks to think outside of these very specific Red Cross or FEMA checklists and, and think about preparedness a bit more broadly and holistically. Well, you make a good point, too, because you talk about people having cell phones mm-hmm. and having so much information on their cell phones these days that it was half of that checklist can actually be found on people's phones now. 
Yeah, I always laugh. One of the things that is always on the Red Cross checklist still is having a printed map. And I have not had a printed map in years. Uh, And even if I had one, I don't know that I would know how to read it very well. So, uh, you know, that's a really good example, right? Where if I have my phone, then that's going to take care of that printed map. It's going to take care of emergency contact numbers, all, you know, getting warnings and alerts, all kinds of things are going to be taken care of by having my phone. Of course, that isn't to say like a phone is an end all be all here. You need to have a charger. You need to, you know, have it not be destroyed in the disaster. You need to have Mm -hmm. some kind of cell service, which in some events you won't. So it's not a perfect solution, but you know, when we think uh, even the, the other one that's on there is having a flashlight, essentially everyone in the United States has a flashlight now they can go and check that off because we have our phone, right? And so again, it's about kind of changing our perception of what is it that we actually need to be prepared? Is it really this closet full of supplies or are there other things that are maybe in some ways more important? We know from the research that our social networks, for example, whether or not you know your neighbors, how close knit your community is, that is a a bigger indicator of how prepared you are for a disaster as compared to, you know, how many, how many supplies you can go down and check off on these lists. Well, we only have two and a half minutes left. Would you like to take a minute and a half and over two minutes or so with any final thoughts? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure. So, I mean, I think we covered a lot of really good ground here. A lot of the kind of key themes that I bring up in the book. Um, You know, I assume that the folks that are listening to your podcast are all in the business continuity emergency management world. So, um, uh, you know, again, I think a lot of what you'll read in the book will probably resonate with you. I think where the value is here is trying to give kind of this overarching framework of thinking about these different challenges that we have and really having us confront those challenges that we have in emergency management uh, so that we can think about what it is we need to change, how we need to be doing our jobs differently, how we need to change policy as we move into the future here where we're dealing with these increased risks from the climate crisis, but other, you know, you know other risks that are, are on the increase here, whether it's cybersecurity or whatever else. Um, and so hopefully, yeah, if you're, if you're in this field, would love it if you read the book, that would be great. Um, and yeah. Yeah, well, like I said, I really do like the book because it does challenge traditional thinking, you know, and you do point out some of the gaps that I think some people are probably afraid to, <clears throat> excuse me, stand up and, and talk about. You know, mm-hmm. which doesn't help, really. You know, mm-hmm. uh, oh, I don't want to rock the boat or uh, open a can of worms. Well, sometimes you got to if you want to be able to move forward, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So thank you, Dr. Montano. I really appreciated uh, your talk today. And congratulations on the book. It, it, was, it was a great read, you know, and there are, as uh, serious as the topic is, there's a lot of personal anecdotes. There's some humor in there as well. It's really, uh, it's a different kind of book on such a very serious topic. And I think that's why I gravitated uh, to it so much is that it wasn't dry like so many other ones are. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, it was a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time with us today. I greatly yeah. appreciate that. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And to everybody listening and watching, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. 
Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.